Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. On April 7th, 1994, the African country of Rwanda saw a full-scale attempt to exterminate an entire people group. The Tutsi people of Rwanda spent 100 days running for their lives from the Hutu militia, and over the course of that 100 days, it is estimated that over a million people from the Tutsi tribe were killed. Now, out of that unspeakable genocide, books have been written, movies have been made about it, and I remember being given a book about one man's journey. It was called uh, The Race for Life. And this guy was literally running for his life. And I remember reading the book, The Little Apartment, and just being deeply moved, thinking, man, this is unbelievable. This is unspeakable what this guy went through, the heartbreak of all of it. And a short time later, I was able to meet with this man who escaped the Rwandan genocide million people over a hundred days died, but he didn't. He was one of the few that escaped. And I remember I looked at him and the first thing I said, as we sat down at the Chinese restaurant, I said, man, I read your book and I cried. And he looked at me and he didn't say anything. It's in that moment that it hit me. It's one thing to read about something. It's another thing to live through it, right? For me, it was words on a page, little Josiah and safe Ohio. I cried. But for him, it was flesh and blood, right? It was his real life lived out in front of him. And as I think about our text this week, we find ourselves in a similar situation, right? We're reading about, what, a group of people enslaved for hundreds of years, something so heartbreaking, so unrelatable to us. But we see from last week in chapter one, the Israelite people were initially in Egypt as a place of refuge, right? There's going to be this great famine, and they need food. So what do you do when you need food? You find the food. And what did they do? They stayed in Egypt just a little too long, long enough that this group of 70 who initially was there, they're expanding. They're growing very quickly. And in fact, the Pharaoh is a little bit worried. He's saying, what are we going to do with all these people? I've got an idea. Let's put them to work. So what do you do is... You see them building actual cities, but the people keep multiplying. We can't kill these people off by working them seven days a week, 24 hours a day. So the instructions are then to say, okay, baby boys, the plan is to have baby boys killed shortly after they're born. But these midwives, as we saw in chapter one, they don't cooperate. They're not interested in fearing man, but they fear God instead. And they said, we're going to let these boys live. So Pharaoh says, okay. If you don't want to kill these kids right after they're born, here's what you do. This big river, the Nile River that spans 4,000 miles through different countries on the continent of Africa, here's what you do. Take the baby, you throw him in the river. And as we come to our text today, which is Exodus chapter 2, which is page 50 in the Pew Bible, we're going to see three ways that chapter 2 is broken down today. So the first is Moses is delivered from the Nile to deliver others as God hears his people. So in chapter two today, we're going to see the background story of Moses. 
Now, pause for a second. We throw words like, well, when Jesus came to earth, when Moses was here, the Exodus. But the question is, when exactly did all of this happen? For those of you who are good at math, this will help you. If you're not good with numbers, this won't make any sense. So just take a mental break here. Uh, But if Jesus came 2,000 years ago, which he did, 1,500 years roughly before the time of Jesus coming to earth is when these events take place. So let's look at verse 1 in our text. Verse 1 and 2, it says, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. So you think of all these thousands of Israelites enslaved in Egypt. Now the writer of Exodus, who is Moses, by the way, zooms in on one family, zooms in on one tribe. And it says here, we get the names in Exodus chapter six, the man and the woman here, the man is Amram and the woman's name is Jochebed. And this little child there in verse two, that we see this son that is born a fine child. Moses was probably happy to write that down. He was a fine child. That was me, but his parents hide him, right? They hide him for three months. Now, at this point in the story, there's nothing necessarily unusual about his birth circumstances, except for the fact that, wait, he's a baby, he's a boy, he needs to be thrown one place, which is the river. But before we continue, what really happened with Moses on the river? I ask you that because I had two educations on this, okay? So the first one is what movies and kids' Bibles taught me, all right? This does lead to a greater point, I promise. But in the 1998 animated film, The Prince of Egypt, right? Moses, his mom, his sister, they're all in on this. They put him in a basket. He goes down the river. The rapids are raging. Crocodile misses him. Hippopotamus misses him. The big oar of a boat is swiping away, barely misses him. And then Moses floats on into a nice little cove where Pharaoh's daughter is at, taking her bath. And then I read a published book by some PhDs recently, and it says, quote, his river ride in a basket of bulrushes. I'm thinking, what? Okay, this confirms it. Prince of Egypt is right. So I emailed this guy who wrote the book, and I said, I'm just checking. Is that what happened? He said, just so you know, I'm not the editor of this book. I didn't write that sentence. I'm not responsible for that. You email him. I said, okay, maybe we're on to something. Finally, the third thing, I'm reading to my kids the other night, and it talks about his mom made a little baby basket and sent him down the river, and he floated right to Pharaoh's daughter. The guy who wrote this kid's Bible, PhD, very smart. And I'm thinking, well, that just must be the story. And then I actually find my Bible. I open it up, and let's look at what actually happens in verses 3 through 5. Look at the text. It says, when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes, daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. So pause. Moses has not taken a river ride. 
he wasn't sent down the river. In fact, his parents had three months to plan, what are we going to do with baby Moses? This was a thought through plan. Because as one person rightly commented, Moses was a baby, not a pirate, right? So he's placed in a safe place that isn't going to be taken away and then lost or tipped over or eaten. But what do we see here? We see that he's placed in a basket. Now, this word basket only shows up in one other story in the Bible, and that's in Genesis chapter 6 through 9. It's mentioned many times, but it's the same word for what we see Moses's, not Moses, but Noah's ark. So in the same word that Moses, he's rescued in this little basket, Noah and the ark, just a lot bigger basket um, with lots of animals. But those are two things we see, two individuals, two major players in the Bible of God's redemption. They're saved by certain death, by drowning, by finding salvation in a basket. So what happens? Moses, he's placed in this basket. He's in the reeds. Technically, they did put him in the river, just inside of something that floats and will preserve his life. But we see Pharaoh's daughter coming down to bathe. And Moses' sister waits, and she watches. And then she sees Pharaoh's daughter coming, getting him and taking him. But sometimes we think, well, is this less of a miracle? You know, doesn't God just want us to have faith? Well, yes, but there's one sense in which you can try to find a home for your baby by pushing him down the stroll, you know, in a stroller down the highway. You see what happens. Or you could place him on the front steps of a rich folks house or an orphanage. But we see this decision here is wisdom. It's calculated. It's not reckless. So what do we see? What happens next? Our text is starting in verse six. It says, when she opened it, she saw the child. Behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on, on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. So the sister is watching, saying, they got Moses. I'll go offer some help. Wait a minute, we get to bring Moses home, and we're getting paid. This is amazing. This is working out very well. So the movies and kids' books versus Scripture. Does it matter? Um, I'd say yes, it does. I think we need to learn to discern the difference between entertainment and education. Entertainment, so often there's movies made about the Bible that are putting a lot of things in your mind that never happen. There's kids' Bibles that try to summarize things, and sometimes they do a good job. Other times they just get the story flat wrong. And there are even songs that you hear on Christian radio. Surprise, surprise. Got to break it to you. Not all of those are necessarily accurate as well. And the thing is, God's word has to be our primary go-to, right? We need to inspect it for ourselves so we know for ourselves. We can't just take someone else's word for it because they may be taking someone else's word who took someone else's word who never actually looked at the text. So the Bible is our 
primary source. And last thing I'll say about this is sometimes when we hear something is Christian, we automatically let our guard down and we just take it all in. We don't even try to do what the people in Acts did when Paul went and he preached. They were checking everything he said by what the scripture said. That should be our reflex. Interesting, good, entertaining, but is this actually true? That's the question we need to be asking. Well, back to our text. We see this plan is working out very well. We see in verse 9, what is it? Pharaoh's daughter says to her, uh, to Moses' sister, who we know, if we keep reading, her name is Miriam. She says, take this child away, nurse him for me, I'll give you your wages. So the woman took the child, this would be Moses' mom, and nursed him. So Moses gets to spend some time with his family, right? He gets to go back. One commentator says that this is quite possible. His mom could have been nursing up to three years of age. But then eventually, verse 10, Moses does what all babies do. He grows up. He grows older. And they bring him to Pharaoh's daughter. And in verse 10, he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Moses sounds like a Hebrew word that means to draw out. And so he's given a name, and now naming someone in that time and culture shows he belongs to you. So Moses is no longer with his family. He's now living at Pharaoh's house, and he's going to live at Pharaoh's house up until he is 40 years old. So imagine the impact that must have been living in a pagan culture, living with thousands of idols. They had an idol for just about everything. They had a God that you would sacrifice to, a God you would acknowledge for just about every single part of your day from the moment you woke up until the time you went to bed. So that must have impacted him deeply. But we see here in verses 1 through 10, Moses is delivered, right? He's safe, but not just for himself. He's safe to deliver others. I have a question. Do you know anybody who can't let anything go? I don't mean in a bad way. I mean in a good way. Like they want everything to be done precisely. Maybe you're that person. Maybe you don't realize it, but I'll tell you this. Moses was that guy, okay? He had a concern for justice, and we're going to see it throughout his life, but we see it the first time here in verse 11. It says, when Moses had grown up, he's about 40 years old at this time, he went out to his people He looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. So he looks this way. He looks that way. Doesn't see anybody. So he strikes down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Now, to give it some context, Moses here, he's been living a life unlike all the rest of his relatives. They have been oppressed. He's gotten to live the life of the oppressor. In a sense, he has been... Um, insulated from all of this, but it's not that he was unaware that his people were being beat. Yet one day he finally has had it. You know, it's, it's hard to imagine again. You know, you think about what your grandparents did. If you know your grandparents, what did they do for a living? Think about your parents. What did they do for a living? Think about you. Think about your kids, maybe what you want for them. And you think about Moses, his great-grandparents, slaves. Grandparents, slaves, parents, slaves, and the toll that must have taken on him. And yet, what do we see here? Moses snaps. He strikes this Egyptian. He hides him in the sand. This is Moses doing God's will, Moses' way. 
It's God's will that the people, his people, be free to worship him. But it's not going to happen by Moses killing an Egyptian, burying him in the sand, and then doing it the next day, systematically taking it out all through Moses. No, it's not going to happen with him and in his power. But this one-man revolt ends quickly. So Moses kills him. He buries him in the sand. He hopes no one notices. Goes to bed that night. Don't know how well he sleeps. But then he wakes up the next day. Verse 13, he went out the next day. Behold, two Hebrews. So now two of his people are struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? See, Moses, again, why are you guys fighting? He's got this thing for injustice. He's saying, I'm not going to let this happen. They're physically fighting. It's like, why don't you guys band together and fight against the Egyptians instead of fighting each other? And we want to say, Moses, just mind your own business. You already killed somebody. Let's stop it now. But he just can't. They respond to him in verse 14. They said, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. So the first instance, Egyptian beating a Hebrew. Now it's Hebrews fighting each other. So it's not race that he's worried about. It's about justice. He's saying, just cut all this out. And yet this attitude is a foreshadowing of Israel's attitude toward Moses later on, later on saying, who made you the boss of us? Why don't you just move along? But here's the thing. This murder is known. And in verse 15, Pharaoh hears of it. He seeks to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stays in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. You don't just get to wear Pharaoh's jersey, get to all the benefits, and then you get to take out his own people. This is a clear act of treason. So it's time for Moses to leave. So Moses goes from Egypt to Midian. And in our minds, we think, I maybe know where that's at. Not sure where that's at. So how far of a distance is this? Uh, one person who has walked these lands said it would take two to three days, depending on the pace of your walk. Now, my thought is taking the life of someone. He was probably in a very brisk pace. So he got there in a hurry. So he makes it to the Midianite wilderness. I got to tell you, a wilderness, if you look throughout scripture, it's a place that people will go as a place of refuge, right? A place where no one else wants to go. We see Elijah does this after his encounter with several hundred pagan God worshipers. He flees to a remote wilderness. We see Jesus in John 11, when the Jews are plotting to take his life, he withdrew to a region near the desert. So a good place to flee is a good place to go where no one else wants to go. So Moses gets there in verse 15. He does the smart thing. He gets to Midian and he sits down by a well. Moses thinks, man, I'm finally away from all of the injustice that I've witnessed for decades of my life in Egypt. Look at verse 16 and 17, what Moses witnesses. It says, now the priest of Midian had seven daughters and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. Moses thinks, I'm finally away from, ah, here we go again. These seven girls are trying to water these animals. They're getting pushed around by these guys. So what does Moses do? He stands up and he saves them. 
Now, there are some places in the world today where there are still shepherds, believe it or not. New Zealand is one of those places. It's reading the testimony of an eight-year-old girl in New Zealand, and it's her job to take the flock, to go get water. And so we know back then, these are probably younger girls. They're getting pushed around by grown men, and Moses says, talk on it, not again. Get away. I'm going to rescue these girls. I'm going to water their flock. And what happens? The girls come home in verse 18. They come home and their dad says, how is it that you've come home so soon today? They say, dad, there's this Egyptian. He delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. They don't know that he's not an Egyptian, but Moses has lived like an Egyptian his whole life to this point. He's got the haircut or lack of hair. He's got the garb thing. And this Egyptian guy, helped us. And then the dad says, what? We're living out here in the desert. You know, the prospect of you guys getting married is like zero out of zero. Says verse 20 says, where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. I don't know this guy. I don't care that he's from Egypt. All I know is he cares about you. I care about you. Bring him over. And what does he do? Moses comes over for dinner, which in that culture, you don't just have anybody over for dinner. Having dinner with someone means you approve of them. Um, you're welcoming to them. You're, it's a bigger stamp of approval than maybe what we would think of having a meal with someone today. But we see Moses, what? He's rejected by his people back in Egypt. They don't really want his help. But we see he's welcomed by strangers here in Midian. So Moses has nothing else really going for him at this point. Verse 21, he's content. He says, I'll stay with you guys. And the man even gives Moses his daughter named Zipporah. So Moses is now away from Egypt. He has a family now. He's got a wife. He's got a father-in-law. He's got a lot of sister-in-laws, all great things. Uh, Verse 22, Moses' wife gives birth to a son, and she calls his name Gershom, which means banishment, says, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. We're not really from here. I'm not really from here. My son, we're all kind of disconnected from our true people. Yet Moses is going to be here. What if he spent the first 40 years in Egypt, right? He's now going to be in the desert for another 40 years. So think about this before he even goes back to Egypt to say, let my people go, right? He's going to be 80 when he does that. So we think about our lives. Some of us haven't hit 40 here. And you think you haven't even left Egypt yet. And then yet Moses is going to be spending 40 years in the desert, this time of preparation, because before God calls him back to Egypt, Moses needs to learn some things. He needs to learn some things out in the desert that he otherwise would not have learned in the palace. He needs to learn some things about marriage and children and shepherding and in-laws and lots of other stuff because he's going to be dealing with a large group of people that are married. They've got children. They've got in-laws. Don't mean to frame that in a negative way. I'm just saying Moses is going to be learning a lot in his 40 years. Now think about it like this. Moses is out of Egypt but it's going to take some time for Egypt to slowly get out of Moses. What do we say? In Egypt, it's hard to imagine, for example, we talk about Egypt, and you think, 
I know how to spell the word, maybe. I know it's in Africa somewhere, but you have to really put yourself in that place, in that time. Like we said, the idolatry was rampant. The idolatry was out of control. Everything around your life circled around a God, a false God, a pagan God, from what you would eat to what you would drink. It just becomes normal. You know, some things I, sometimes I wonder in our life, how many things we see and do that just become normal that aren't. Like, for example, yesterday I was walking down the back alley of my house. I looked in someone's backyard. It's like a replica of a human skeleton, like leaning against a tree. I didn't even think anything of it. It's like, well, that's from Halloween. Is that normal? Like, I don't know. That's just something cultural. I don't think it's normal. Why are we getting used to this? But no matter how strange some things are, how wrong they are, you're around it enough, you just start thinking it's normal. So here we have Moses. He's here 40 years in the desert. He's got a father-in-law whose name is Jethro, whose name is friend of God. And this guy is going to be a great asset in Moses' life. He's going to be a great blessing to him. But Moses is now taking this 40 years to detox from seeing idolatry every day, pagan gods every day. And now he just has some time to think. And in the next chapter, we'll see meeting the true God who made him. So what do we see? Moses is delivered from the Nile to deliver others as God hears his people. So Moses, it's really nice for you. You know, you've got change of scenery. Well, there's not much to see in the desert, but you know what I'm saying. Um, You're away from the slavery. You don't have to watch all the oppression. But back in Egypt, things haven't got any better. We're talking about his relatives, hundreds of years of slaves. Verse 23 in our text, it says, during those many days, the king of Egypt died And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. So for the first time in the story, we see, you know, what what is their reaction to this life? And they're groaning. They're saying, God, help us. Verse 24, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. A few things in life are more frustrating when you're speaking to someone and they're not listening. I need your attention. Kids, I need your attention. Sorry, that's just flashbacks from yesterday at home. I need your attention. And yet God is not preoccupied with other things. Rather, he's listening to his children, because ultimately the point of Israel and slavery was not to be slaves just forever and ever and ever, but it was to be free to worship God. The point of our life isn't to just be a slave to sin, falling into the same patterns, same routines, same godless behavior, but we want to be free so we can worship God. We want to be free through Christ to serve him. I got to tell you that freedom for them, freedom for us, is not actually the prize. I know we're Americans and I'm so thankful for our freedom, but knowing God is actually the prize. So whether you're in North Korea, whether you're in China, whether you're in Ohio, knowing God in whatever context, that is the ultimate goal. Everything else 
just fades to the background. So we see Moses, first 40 years are in Egypt. The next 40, he is here in the desert. His people are crying out to God. But we see, what do we see from God? He says, I hear you. I remember that promise made, that covenant made. I see it all. You think I don't know what's happening? I know what's happening in their life. He knows what's happening in your life more than we know. We're just one person with one perspective, not able to know thoughts, intentions, actions. And yet God is telling them, I'm aware of all of this. And he has a plan. So the question at this point, who is it going to be that delivers God's people? Because Moses at this point, he's burned about every bridge he has back in Egypt. Like I mentioned, he's going to be 80 when he shows back up. Not a lot of energy probably left. But he's not going to have prestige, honor, influence, or any sway with the new Pharaoh. I don't know who Moses is. But it's good. It's good that he doesn't, because if he did, and if he would go, could go in and negotiate, then everyone would say, ah, see, look what influence can do. If you just have enough influence, you can make it happen. Moses, at this point, he's a shepherd. That's not nearly enough financial aspect, um, assets to mount an army, to buy his people out. Because think about it. If he had all the money in the world and he could just somehow make a deal and get them out of there, it says, see, look what money can do. Money can do anything. Nope. Another thing, he's going to be 80. He's going to go and he's going to fight them. Nope. Because if he could, they'd say, ah, look what the strength of man could do. Moses has nothing. How about the gods of Egypt? I mean, he's probably thinking, I don't know. Maybe those are real. I'm not sure at this point. Here's what Psalm 115 starting in verse four, says about pagan gods. And this goes for any God who's other than the God of the Bible, the true God. Here's what it says. It says, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they don't speak. They have eyes, they can't see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses, but they do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but they do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Complete opposite of the God of the Bible, who can hear, he can see, he knows all, sees all, everything. And yet Moses has one source. He's got only one hope. And you look at verse 9 in that psalm, Psalm 115, it says, O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Saying, you have one to trust. And today we say, I don't have idols. I don't have a little carved image or a piece of rock on my mantle that I pray to. And I think like that's actually going to help anything. But we have gods of this age. We have money. We think this can solve all my problems. Think, man, if I just had enough power, if people would just respect me, I could get to where I need to be. But God is leaving us and he's leaving Moses hopeless in and of ourselves. Say, you have nothing without me. There is no hope of change ever unless I am there, unless I intervene. So we see Moses, he's delivered from the Nile to deliver others as God hears his people. So where does this leave us today as we kind of wrap this up? I mean, 
the story of Moses is off to an interesting start, but other than television movies, um, kids' books, uh, what, what is the point of this, right? As we read through Exodus, the more we learn about the life of Moses, we're going to see a guy who's deeply flawed. You're going to think, man, I wish we had somebody better than this. And it's tempting, I'll tell you, as you read through the Bible, to make certain heroes out of certain people. No doubt some people stood for the right things, and we say, praise God. But it seems like God always puts something in there to let you know, this guy is incredibly broken. He's just a broken instrument I'm using to do my will through. But I got to tell you, all of them fall short. All of them. You start to work your way through the Bible, and you think, oh, man, excellent. Ugh, this thing. You start to read through church history about these people who stood for the faith and think, this guy's awesome. Then you realize he wrote a book about that, or he did a th- that thing. You think, oh, man. And this should all scream to us, say, stop trusting people as your ultimate deliverer. I will let you down. You will let others down. Your favorite person, this, that, or the other, they will disappoint you. So if we could just stop being surprised, right? Just stop it. Don't want to expect it, but just stop being surprised. We need to look to who? We need to look to Jesus, right? The person, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you read about his life. I've never been like, oh man, I can't believe that happened. Never. There's no disappointments in him. We see Jesus as our true deliverer. Unlike Moses, who killed someone, Jesus actually laid his life down for us. Moses, even his deliverance that we'll read about in the days ahead, even that deliverance was temporary. But the deliverance that Jesus brings is eternal. It never, ever ends. One final thing, we see what? Crying out, we see prayer from God's people who are enslaved. And I would imagine there's probably praying happening all throughout this book. You can't imagine that Moses' parents have to be like, what are we going to do? Like, God, help. Give us wisdom. We pray. God, please help us. But we see God letting the Israelites know, I see it all. I know it all. And I'll tell you this. For some of us, prayer has become almost like flossing and brushing right before you go to the dentist. It's like, I haven't been doing this. I'm not sure this actually works, but I know I should. So let's just throw it up there and see what happens. I mean, some of us, our prayer life is it's a skeleton of what it used to be. It almost feels like, what is the point of prayer? You know, I pray, it's like, God, just please let the kids sleep through the night. And they don't sleep through the night. You know, God, just help this or that thing to happen. And it seems like it almost gets worse. It can get discouraging. But I will tell you this, you can't look at God as the enemy, right? You can't ever say, God, I'm mad at you. Don't say that. As one person rightly said, if you ever are mad at God, quickly repent and say you're sorry, because he has a million reasons to be mad at you, and you don't have one reason to be mad at him. But rather, if you're in Christ, you need to see God as your ally. You need to see the difficulties around you as, wow, all of this just proves that the Bible is right. You know, all of what the Bible says about humanity is correct, and people are not good. And so, God, we need you. So we can't trust our circumstances. 
We can't trust the timing of things as well. You even think about Moses's parents with him as a baby. It's going to be 80 years pass by. Who knows if his parents are even alive to see the slaves freed. And they may have been praying, God, we also want deliverance. But they weren't even alive to see the answer to their prayer. Instant is not a word that God uses. It's not a thing. It's always a process. But we want instant everything, instant rice, instant mashed potatoes. I don't know. I don't even like that stuff. But we just want everything to be fast, right? It's like, God, I've been praying about this for two days. How does this not happen? God says, wait, I'm trying to do something in you trying to change you. I'm trying to show you that you have a great need and the need isn't for you to be changed. The need is me. You need me in all of your life, not just as a get out of jail free card. You need me. So as we finish, I pray that as we look at the life of Moses, as we look to the freeing of God's people, there's so many wow, wow moments that the excitement won't put you on the edge of your seat to the fact of like, I don't know what's going to happen next because God does. He has a plan. He's working all things together for good. And so we need to trust him. We need to trust his plan. We need to trust his timing. And you need to know that if you're in Christ, he hears you. The God of the universe who made you and knows all about you and has planned all of this, he hears you. And may that be enough for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the life of Moses. God, showing us that we are not enough. We do not have what it takes. God, we need you from the smallest things to the biggest things, Lord. We need your power. We need your spirit working in us and through us and only you to accomplish your will. Lord, help us this week to rely not on our own flesh, not on our cleverness, God, but to rely on you and you alone. In Jesus' name, amen.